is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. I'm very excited about the guest of today's episode and our forthcoming discussions related to metabolic flexibility. Our guest holds a PhD in physiology and biology of organisms. She has been working as a researcher in University of Colorado and Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne. Currently, she holds a permanent research position in French National Centre for Scientific Research in Strasbourg, France. She also leads international lab between University of Colorado and CNRS. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, pardon my friends, Dr. Audrey Bergignon. Welcome, Audrey. Hi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time for this this podcast. So, how how is life now now in France? Well, so right now I'm not in Strasbourg. I'm in Marseille, which is in the south of France. Mm. Um, as you all know, we are locked down. Uh, we're locked at home. Uh, we're very privileged people because we can still work. We still have sorry food and etc so i feel really really privileged um and my day hasn't changed i don't know about you but my workload is exactly the same as usually mm. uh and so we we're at home uh, we're allowed to go out for about an hour a day no more than two kilometers away from home and mainly to go for grocery shopping uh for uh, pharmacy see a doctor uh and also for exercise a little bit um, mm. and for pets if we have any, but that's about it. And otherwise we have to stay home. Mm. And it's been now for two weeks or how, how long has it been? The lockdown yeah, no, it has been exactly two weeks today, actually. Yeah. And how, how do you feel the situation? Um, I think it's really hard to have a good visibility. Uh, of course, as any scientist, I'm reading avidly every scientific news we have, um, I believe, like, based on what I've read from epidemiologists, uh, experts in infectious disease, that the confinement or, or the social distancing seems to be the best approach as for now. Mm. Um, and, and I'm happy to observe it if it can save lives, of course. Uh, and it seems to be very important. Um, obviously, also, we all have in mind the questions of how long, what it will be after. I'm really concerned about um, the future, the economic future, the geopolitical future, societal future, etc. But on the same time, I, I think we can be hopeful that it will be an opportunity for rupture and for our societies to see changes and to provoke changes that could benefit all of uh, all of us in the long term you know in terms of uh environment uh economy and sustainability and humanity mm. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I've been trying to read also when I have time the research based on 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 these these uh, spread of infectious diseases and yeah it it is it is a difficult situation that we don't really know how long this will last and and I think unfortunately many of the predictions they have really short term they show maybe four months or five or six but they don't show what happens after that when the curve has gone. Mm. Uh, down that does it come back and and so on but I think it's just important to accept that this social distancing might might last for for a long time and like you said try to find also the good sides from it that we are forced to kind of find new ways and maybe benefits and maybe take care of the nature mm. no and I have a full confidence in our researchers doctors caretakers fellows are working really hard either to treat, take care of people right now or to find a treatment, to find a vaccine. Uh, mm. And I'm, yeah, I'm very proud of all this community and very in, admiring them right now. Mm, yeah. And so in, in the lockdown, there's, there's quite a bit of sedentary behavior as you're restricted of movement and you have been doing research related to sedentary behavior and metabolic flexibility. Could you tell us more about metabolic flexibility? Yes, of course. Uh, so it sounds I kind of like complicated word in some ways. Uh, actually, it's, it's a pretty simple concept. Um, it's defined by the capacity for an organism or our body to adapt fuel use to fuel availability. So, and that's the original uh, definition that was given by Killian Mandarina. Um, what does that mean? Is we receive food, for example, and we have food um, that are composed of micronutrients, uh, protein, mm. uh, fat, and carbohydrates. And of course, when we're going to consume a meal, this uh, food, the fuel availability, availability is going to increase and the body will need to use it um, accordingly. And that's its disability to adjust. Then we also, uh, more recently, uh, added to this definition the idea of the adaptation to energy demand, because it's not only our fuel availability is not changing only because of dietary intake, but also according to the energy demand um, due to you know exercise or physical activity, etc. So that's the main definition, basically. Hmm. And and how do you actually study metabolic flexibility? What kind of experimental setups you have that you can actually study and measure it? So that's a very good question because it's constantly evolving and it's a it's a topic of debate in some ways. So originally, uh, it was measured during a euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamp. What it was doing, um, it was measuring basically the increase in the respiratory quotient. The respiratory quotient is the ratio between the volume of expired CO2 over the volume of uh, consumed oxygen. And mm. if we remember our class of biochemistry, uh, this volume of VCO2 and VO2 depends on um, the amount of carbohydrate, fat, and protein we're burning. 
each uh, molecule doesn't need the same amount of oxygen and doesn't provide the same uh, amount of VCO2. So it's, it's basically an index of um, the quantity of fat over carbohydrate, and we'll mainly talk about only these two uh, micronutrients that are burned by the body. So an increase in the RQ, which is a respiratory quotient, will indicate an increase in the carbohydrate oxidation, and by contrast, a decrease in this respiratory quotient will uh, indicate a greater use of fat as fuel. So what was happening, basically, it's um, a measurement of these uh, changes in this respiratory quotient under insulin-stimulated conditions, which uh, basically reflects the suppression of lipid oxidation and the greater utilization of glucose for oxidation storage. Mm. Um, and but this is uh, the gold standard method, like for measuring insulin sensitivity at the whole body level. But at the same time, this is a supra-physiological method. This doesn't represent the real life setting. Mm. So we and others, and mainly uh, Jose Galgani from uh, Chile, was probably uh, the main expert on the question of metabolic flexibility nowadays, um, I've been thinking of uh, other um, other ways to measure metabolic flexibilities that will reflect more uh, real-life setting. What we have said is basically if um, the metabolic flexibility is this ability to adjust the substrate use to substrate um, changes, uh, we can just provoke it by changing in diet, for example. So you will fit somebody with a high carbohydrate diet and you will see if the person is mm. available to accordingly increase uh, his or her carbohydrate oxidation. Or opposite, you will feed the person with a fat, a high fat diet and see if this person is able to adjust um, by an increase in the use of fat as fuel. Uh, another way to do it, for example, will be to use an acute exercise and to see if suddenly we're able really to adjust, you know, the use of carbohydrate and fat accordingly to, to the terms of the exercise. We can think of long-term fasting. So now we're fasted, there is no more carbohydrate. We will need to rely on our fat from our own body. Is the body able to do this? So basically, what we are suggesting or recommending is to subscribe to views that is broader from the original um, definition and to really think in terms of we have a stressor, an acute event that is going to stress the body, and we're going to see, to look at the relationship between the um, regulator that is a component that is going to regulate the body and an effector like the shift in the substrate use. I don't know if I'm clear here. Mm, yeah, I, I think I understood. So basically you, you need to measure the ventilator gases to get the RQ value and then you create some kind of stressor. It can be the ingestion of carbs or fat or it can be 
exercise or it can be fasting. Did I understand yes. it correct? Okay. And what do you think is the strengths and weaknesses of different stressors like ingestion of food, exercise or fasting? I don't know if there are really strengths or not. I think it depends on, of course, always your question, what do you really want to look at? Is a person able mm. to you know, adapt to acute exercise? We say that, for example, people with type 2 diabetes can be resistant to exercise. Um, that's a form of metabolic inflexibility. Uh, so in that case, mm. it might be more interesting to really look at the ability to cope with an acute event of exercise. Um, if it's a, uh, the, the, the diet is the easiest because it's the easiest to control, you know, in a clinical setting. Mm. Um, fasting can be also good to really look at the ability to um, adjust to changes in the availability of fatty acid. So now we're not mm. about carbohydrate, we're really about fatty acid. And if you want to look at the metabolic flexibility in response to changes in carbohydrate or in, to changes in fatty acid, you need to use different uh, methods and approach and fasting will be an interesting approach in that sense. So I don't think there are mm. pros and cons. It's more a question of feasibility of setting an ability to control. But I believe mm. like if we were doing this different acute event in the same person, the results will all be correlated. Mm. I, I see, I see. And, and could you explain how does it usually, for example, we take an example, ingestion of carbs, uh, what happens with the RQ value and how does it different between different uh, people groups? So, for example, um, a person who is metabolically flexible will mainly burn fat in fasting state. Then there will be a consumption of a meal, which will lead towards an increase in this respiratory quotient, indicating a greater use of carb. Mm. Um, the metabolic inflexibility is characterized by a lower ability to burn fat in fasting state and a lower mm. ability to increase um, the oxidation of carb in postprandial situations. So basically, this inability to shift from one substrate to the other in response to different metabolic situation. Hmm. Yeah, and and wouldn't be kind of also incapability to use use the substrates because you said that the fat burn is is low, and then even when you when you ingest carbs, even the use of carbs stays uh, low or not optimal. So it, is it kind of difficulty of utilizing the substrates? Uh, it can go along with this. Yes, it's basically. Hmm. Um, and I think that impairments in metabolic flexibility are probably multifactorial, you know, can be a, due to reduced uh, disposal rate of glucose by skeletal muscle. 
So in the inability of the muscle to taken up glucose can be due to um, the impaired suppression of adipose tissue lipolysis following uh, a meal uh, or uh, the reduced suppression of the hepatic glucose output, all of this. So each organ is really playing a role in the regulation of metabolic homeostasis and these organs can be, their function can be impaired. And so they are not able to handle the substrate the way it should be. And as a result, we can't burn fat in fasting state and carb in postprandial state, basically. Mm. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. And you mentioned that there's many different uh, mechanisms or, or organisms. Can you can you differentiate somehow whether it's a problem on a muscle level or whether it's a problem in uh, lipolysis or hepatic output? Can you can you somehow differentiate between these in, with any any experimental setup? Um, yes, we can, and so. Um, so I think, so first of all, we don't really know right now which one will be the primary defect. I doubt there is one that is really a primary defect. I will more uh, hypothesize a concerted or uh, a group defect from the different uh, organs. Uh, the way to know, uh, to delineate the impairments in the different uh, organs is to use tracers, tracer techniques. So we're going to label mm. molecules of glucose or fatty acid or glycerol um, that we will use either through an oral administration or via infusion in the body. And by using these labeled molecules, we can follow them and we can determine the kinetics of these different substrates. So, for example, if we use an oral glucose tracer, we'll be mm-hmm. able to measure its rate of oxidation, its rate of uptake or disappearance from the body, so uptake by the peripheral organs. We will be able to also uh, use a labeled glucose that will be infused and now that will give us for example this rate of suppression of the de novo glucogenesis which is the new synthesis of glucose by the liver and we will really mm-hmm. be able to determine this metabolic process we'll be able to look at the rate of disappearance from this uh, this glucose or um, also the rate of appearance. So by using tracer, we're really able to look at the substrate kinetics and the substrate fluxes through the body and 
at each of the main organs involved in metabolic um, metabolic processes. Hmm. And I'm I'm not very familiar with this tracing. How do you how do you define that? How much do you have it in different parts of the body when it, when it has been uh, ingested or administered? Um, so this basically you will give a if we if we look uh, if we take for example the oral administration of a glucose a molecule of glucose. So you're going to mm. give a certain dose, it is a well-known dose of uh, labeled glucose. So how we, do we label it? We will label it using atoms of carbon or atoms of hydrogen. A carbon, usually it's a, an, an atom that we will say 12C, uh, that it's in our you know table of the atoms we all learn at some point. Mm. And when it's radioactive, it will be a 14C, but um, mm. a stable as isotope, so these, these are isotopes that have a different number of neutrons in the, in the atom of uh, carbon, will be a 13C. So it's a, it's a molecule that is going to act exactly the same as a 12C, the most common one. It's pr- um, it has the same biological and um, uh, chemical properties but different physical mm. properties, obviously. And that allows us to follow, to track this molecule in the body. How do we do that? Um, we, for example, still with this oral ingestion, um, when this molecule is going to be used by the body, uh, the body is going to transform the glucose molecule in a molecule of CO2. But now it will be a labeled molecule of CO2, it will be a certain CO2. Hmm. And the person is going to expire it in in its breath. Uh, And so we're going to collect a sample of breath. And then by using uh, mass spectrometers, mainly uh, isotopic ratio mass spectrometers, Hmm. we're going to measure the ratio between the certain CO2 over the 12 CO2, which will give us an idea of the quantity that has been burned and that has come from the molecule that was initially ingested. And so by Mm. doing this, and now we know also what was the quantity of the labeled glucose in the whole meal. And so we can say, Mm. well, let's say, for example, 60 persons after 24 hours of the labeled glucose we initially gave was burned by the body, we can assume that mm. 60% of the glucose from this meal was burned by the body. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, very, very interesting technique. Uh, so what kind of things you have found out when you have used this method? Um, so we are... You have a lot of... I, different methods uh, and this uh, allows to to get a lot of different information um, mm. lately for example we have been uh, using the tracer uh, with the carbohydrates uh, tracer so the glucose tracer orally 
just to give kind of a simple example. And we looked um, at this in conjunction with an oral glucose tolerance test. So an oral glucose tolerance test, basically you are giving mm. um, 75 gram of glucose at once. And we're looking at um, the glycemia following this glucose load, oral glucose load. Uh, so we mm. are going to take blood samples every 30 minutes, every hour for about four hours. And we're also looking at the quantity uh, of the amount of uh, carbohydrate that is being burned. And by adding mm. a tracer in this oral glucose load, we were also able to know what is a total amount of carbohydrate that is burned, but also the amount that was provided, that was given in the meal. So that just allows us to decipher the different pool of carbohydrate. Is it from the body or is it from the meal? Um, mm. And by doing so, uh, so we did that during a bed rest study. So bed rest study um, is a study during which we're asking people who are physically active or, have, or are totally healthy or lean people, and we ask them to remain in strict bed rest for multiple days. Those studies can mm. go from three days, seven days, up to three months, for example. And this study, it was a 20, no, it was a two month study. And uh, using this test, using the oral glucose tolerance test in conjunction with this glucose tracer, we were able to show that um, metabolic inflexibility is actually triggered by physical inactivity. Even when we're controlling mm. for food, when people are not gaining weight, just the fact of being physically inactive really triggers this metabolic inflexible state. And this metabolic inflexible state was preceding the development of glucose intolerance, which is quite important because now we can start to see a, a cascade of events that people may become first physically inactive and or sedentary, uh, sedentary, and then it, they start to develop a metabolic inflexible state, and now it leads towards other uh, metabolic complications. Hmm. Very, very interesting findings. So you did this and you, you had the people actually in a strict bed rest for, for several days or even weeks. Did I understand correctly? Yes, or months. Yeah. How, how, how did you get the participants for this kind of, kind of study? So um, most of these studies are actually funded by space agencies. So you will ask me, what is the relationship between space agencies and what we've been talking about? Mm. Um, you have to know that uh, astronauts are the most physically inactive, uh, sedentary, and also confined person. Uh, I will not say on the hearse, but in space. Mm. Um, and so um, they, uh, the space environment uh, is characterized by microgravity, physical inactivity, and it's leading to a constellation of physiological adaptations that are adverse, including muscle mass 
loss, loss of bone, loss of uh, strength, cardiovascular deconditioning, immunology, depression, uh, and uh, alterations of uh, intermediary metabolism. Um, and so the, the space agencies are trying to understand what is going on uh, and also to develop some uh, countermeasures that can prevent these metabolic alterations and physiological alterations. And so for, for this, it's really challenging, of course, to study all of this uh, in space. Um, in addition, there are only a few astronauts and they're very busy. So some uh, mm. space analog have been developed on HERS, and the bed rest is one of those because it allows to maintain people fully physically inactive for a long period of time. In addition, these people are um, with the feet a little bit higher than the, the, the head. So there is a six degrees angle, which is um, mimicking or uh, inducing the same uh, shift of the blood flow, uh, the, yeah, the blood volume from the lower part of the body towards the higher part of the body. You know, we always see these astronauts with a big head kind of. Um, so those mm. bed rests are basically funded by the space agencies for all these reasons. And for us, it's an amazing opportunity to really study the hidden mechanisms on underlying the effects of physical inactivity on the body and metabolism. Mm, I, I fully agree. It's very, very interesting studies that you can, you can done with, do with the bed rest. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Fibian is an accurate sitting and physical activity tracking device and analysis platform. It is a great tool for projects that aim for behavior change in sedentary behavior and incidental physical activity. Fibian provides easy-to-understand PDF and web browser reports for participants. Other features include comparisons to recommendations, linking results to health risks, achievement cards, and interactive goal-setting tool. In addition, Fibian provides an API that allows for easy integration to other systems and applications. Learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian, from researchers to researchers. How, how do you see the bed rest relating to kind of sedentary behavior in an in a inactive office worker, for example? They are not in a... In a weightlessness they still have gravity and sometimes they need to take few steps so how do you see the relationship with the metabolic inflexibility so of course um, the bed rest model is a an extreme model uh, except unfortunately people were hospitalized for the long term uh, nobody's staying in bed for such a long time so it's a great model to really um, examine the mechanistic underpinnings. But, and, and so in that sense, mm. it's quite far away from the regular sedentary person. But it's a, it informs us tremendously about what is going on uh, mechanistically wise. However, I think there is one example of the bad rest studies that is highly interesting to me. Um, you have to know that during these bed rest studies, as I said, we're trying to develop some countermeasure to maintain the astronauts in, uh, in good health. And you always see them mm. doing a lot of exercise. And so we test this exercise on HERS, 
and these people were subjected to bed rest. So there have been tons of um, bed rest studies during which a group is either in strict bed rest and the other group is doing aerobic exercise, resistive exercise, both together, heat training, different, you know, terms, mm-hmm. etc. And these people, in my mind, are the perfect model of the active couch potato. It's these people who are doing a very large volume of physical activity and then the rest of the days are fully inactive, totally sedentary. Hmm. What is really interesting, and of course, this depends on the specific outcome we're going to look at. Uh, so I will not say it's for every single outcome, but on the metabolic perspective, what is interesting is when those people are engaging in really large volume of physical activity, resistive with aerobic, VO2 max going from 40 to 80%. So it's really high intensity physical activity. They're doing it Mm. from three to five times a, a week, even more sometimes. And despite of this very large volume of exercise, they are still not able to prevent the development of insulin resistance or the fully prevent the development of metabolic inflexibility. Which to mm. me is kind of showing the hidden effect of sedentary behaviors because who are these people? They are physically active, but they are highly sedentary. And it's basically yes. a way to see that exercise is different from too much sitting that it's not necessarily able to counteract the adverse health effects of sedentary behaviors. And so in that line, I think this model is really relevant and very informative. Hmm. I lost you for a moment, but I think it came back. So how, how long did you do this kind of study that you had people in the bed rest and then uh, doing high high amount of training three time, three to five times per week and still you saw insulin resistance and metabolic inflexibility. So how long were these, these setups? So the studies I'm talking about, one was conducted uh, in men and it was a three-month study. Another one was conducted in women and it was a two-month study. Um, we conducted one more recently and it was 21 days. Um, these days we're working on results obtaining a two-month study again. Um, so yeah, it depends. Hmm. So basically you had people without uh, insulin resistance or metabolic inflexibility, and then you had them either two or three months in bed rest, but doing exercise three to five times a week, and these people developed uh, insulin resistant and metabolic inflexibility. Yes. Yeah, that's uh, very, very interesting. So, of interesting. course, the level of insulin resistance and metabolic inflexibility was not as much than the people who were not doing anything. Mm. But it was not fully preventing yeah. this uh, dysfunction or this metabolic alterations. Yeah. Very, very interesting findings. How do you see this in relation to current situation of 
of a lockdown that you are allowed to go outside for one hour a day probably many people are pretty sedentary in their in their houses or or small apartments in city center how do you how do you see this all all playing out so to me there are really you know two things we need to be physically active because physical activity is more about most likely um the training effect you know allowing our body to be more insulin sensitive to be more um able to handle uh to oxidize fat, etc., to have more muscle, to mm. have um, all our machinery working much better at a mitochondrial level, etc. Um, what I think is happening, and I'm saying this with a grant, uh, with cautious. This is more what I'm thinking. I don't have pure evidence for this, but more mm. based on you know all the recent results we're seeing in our different studies. Um, I think that the sedentary behaviors, it's really about we're removing any contraction from our muscle. We're not even fighting with gravity anymore. Uh, gravity has shaped our body like, you know, through evolution, like light and oxygen and water. And so we really need this constant hmm. muscle um, uh, tonus. And that's we're removing it when hmm. we're sitting. We're not having this. Uh, and so I think the difference is physical activity is going to train our body in some ways, but to not be sedentary behaviors is an effort of every instant. We need to have a muscle activity to use this glucose, because in that sense, that's a glucose we're mainly going to use constantly. If you think of what we said at the beginning, what is metabolic flexibility? It's the ability to burn fat. At night, fasting, and it's the ability mm. to burn carbohydrate during the day when we are eating, when we are awake, and when we are supposed to be active. Mm. And when we remove this uh, activity and we're sedentary, we are not allowing the shift in the substrate use, and so we are becoming more metabolic inflexible. And this, as we said, can lead towards other complications, glucose intolerance, insulin resistance, most likely down the road to type 2 diabetes. We also have uh, findings showing that people who are the most metabolic flexible, people who are the less sedentary, are those who gain the least weight over five years. So all of this is really connected. So how do we do in this current situation that we are in. Personally, first of all, I don't have a standing desk like I have at work, but so I set up a kind of like plenty of books on my, on my, uh, on my desk and I'm trying to have a standing desk. Uh, and then I'm really trying to break my sedentary behaviors every hour. You know, I'm going to go around. Sometimes I take the stairs. I mean, in big building, uh, just going up and down. Mm. Uh, when I'm talking, because these days I think we're all spending a lot of time on the phone with our friends and family and colleagues, uh, I'm going to walk in the apartment. I'm trying, I'm like, no, don't stay sitting, uh, go walk around. It's not much, but now I'm, I'm re-engaging my muscle. I'm having a muscle tonus and I'm using this glucose. Uh, and, and I, I think what is important to finish maybe we, we're conducting these days, um, 
a study during which we're comparing the effects of people of uh, training that is done as typically advocated, mm. um, asking people to do 45 minutes of brisk walking in their daily life, five days a week. Or we're asking these people to take mm. these 45 minutes and to break them up in nine five-minute bouts of brisk walking and they spread them out throughout the day, every hour. Uh, what we're observing mm. is this is it has the same effect on insulin sensitivity. It has the same effect on fat oxidation, the ability to burn fat. However, the fact of spreading out those short bouts of activity throughout the day is really beneficial or seems to be beneficial for glycemia, for glucose control, for maintaining or preventing hyperglycemic event, which we know could lead towards complications if they're maintained over time. So really my message is even if we can't go out, if we're confined, try to go out for your one hour, maybe doing something more uh, intense, uh, brisk walking, going fast, but then mm. the rest of the day, don't be seated, really sink every time, don't be on the chair too long. Hmm. And if you if you draw some results from your three month bed rest study now, for example, in the UK, the risk groups are advised to self isolate for three months. So it's the same time period. It's not full bed rest, but it's it might be very sedentary for some people. What kind of effects and of what amplitude you you could expect to see with these these groups if they they are sedentary? I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know if I want to go there because I think it's a pretty pessimistic message. In addition of people to tell people now you are confined and <laughs> your health is not going to go well, uh, but uh, uh, it, it might be <laughs> <true>. useful. <laughs> uh, what we have found in these bed rest studies, and we confirmed these results at levels of physical inactivity that we observe in the general population. So these results are really transferable to the current situation. When, when people are becoming physically inactive, they're developing metabolic features that are close to what we observe in people who have obesity or who have type 2 diabetes, which means we're observing a hypertriglyceridemia, hyperlipemia, a resistance to the effects of insulin, so development of insulin resistance, and this inability to burn fat as fuel, and the development of this metabolic inflexibility. And what is important to say in, in these people, because it's highly controlled, we are in clinical setting, we provide the food to the people, etc. We made sure that they were not gaining any weight, which means these results are not the effect of overfeeding. These results are the effect of physical mm. inactivity per se itself. The problem these days, and and I will go back to one of my favorite uh, work, piece of work from uh, Jen Meyer from the 1950s. It's people are physically inactive and most likely they are eating way too much. So it's not only like they are physically inactive, mm -hmm. it's also they are not able to adjust their energy intakes, their food intake 
to their very low levels of physical activity. That's a piece of work from Jen Meyer, who proposed a very famous hypothesis that uh, all group from James Blundell and others in the UK are working on. Um, that basically it's saying that above a certain threshold of physical activity, our body is able to adjust energy intake to our energy needs. But there is a threshold below mm. which the mechanisms of regulation of appetite or food intake are impaired. And so there, there is a mismatch between our intake and our needs, which leads towards a uh, gain in body mass. The problem is, I think these days we are mm. below this threshold. I think we are always be below this threshold, to be honest, in our modern societies. And that's a big problem. But these days we're even more. Yeah. And so the big challenge for people right now is to be able to be really aware that they're physically inactive, that they need to be as little sedentary as they can, but also to decrease their um, food intake. Hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and can easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good valid information. And and you said that there's this certain threshold where the kind of the hunger control works. Can you give any ballpark figures? Where does that threshold? Where could it so be? So for that's something we still don't know exactly. But for when we gather different pieces of evidence, we think this threshold to be around a what we call a physical activity level of one point seven, one point eight. So what does that mean? Physical activity level is a ratio between the total energy expenditure we have every day over the, the what mm. we call the resting metabolic rate, which is the minimum amount of mm. energy our body needs for um, the survival function, you know, for breathing, cardio, for heart to beat, for uh, just being alive. Um, a ratio of mm. 1.7, 1.8 means that 70% of our daily energy is cons is expended by other activities, expenses, than just the bare minimum we need to for survival. When we are, you know, laying down at some neutrality, we didn't eat, etc. How do we reach this? Mm. It's basically not much. 1.7, 1.8, it's going to be this, this kind of 30, 40 minutes brisk walking per day, five days a week. That's what we reach. That's how we reach it. So that, that's really, it goes aligned with uh, current recommendation, you know, for physical activity in most countries uh, or westernized countries in the world. Um, so as long as people mm. are able to uh, move and have this kind of like rapid walk uh, 
for 30 to 45 minutes a day, they will reach this threshold. Mm. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. And, and of course, this probably assumes that you eat certain kind of a diet that if you eat really, really fatty food, for example, greasy food, you probably end up eating it too much, even if you would be at 1.7 or 1.8 or does it does it assume something of the energy density of the diet? Um, of course, the the, the, the thing is, um, the problem with fatty food, it's, it's much more dense. It's also what we call more palatable. So we want it more. All the satiety mm. and satiation signals are weaker in response to fat intake. Uh, so our body is not saying, hey, you got enough. Mm. It's time to stop eating now. Um, we keep eating. Uh, so it's much easier to be, um, overeating with when we eat food and, uh, fat when we eat, um, other micronutrients. Uh, the, the advantage of physical activity, uh, and having a high level of physical activity in our daily life, it's, we are more able to handle this fatty food. We're more able to burn this fat that is going to arrive and uh, that we're going to consume. And I think that's where it's really important in terms of, you know, our body weight management, that physical activity is not only about expending more energy. It's not only about trying to create an energy deficit so that we can lose weight. We have to keep in mind that physical activity mm -hmm. is really important to maintain metabolic processes to optimal, to maintain our ability to uh, respond appropriately to this um, metabolic stress event, like overeating fat, especially, you know, at the moment that mm. we might be sedentary. But if we are physically active enough in our daily life, we will be able to handle this. I think it was a study from Gemstub in the 90s um, or early 2000 that he was showing that somebody was physically inactive doesn't move, cannot eat more than 25% of fat in its diet without starting to gain weight. Even if, you mm. know, the, the amount of food is, is clamped, it's the same. A person who is physically active around this mm. threshold, we're talking about 1.7, 1.8, doing this kind of uh, regular physical activity, was able to eat up to 50% um, it was 54% of fat in its, uh, in its diet. So that really shows that being mm. physically active really allows us to handle this, what I call this acute metabolic stress, like overeating or overeating fat. Mm. Very, very interesting. And, and you said earlier that in your studies you are you are controlling for the food intake and still you see like metabolic features of obesity and type 2 yes. diabetes. How much worse does it get when you actually are overfeeding? Um, I don't. So that's the study we would like to do. The next one, if we talk to the space agency that they can fund us. <laughs> Just, uh, mm. I don't have the exact answer. Um I know that um, 
a group from uh, the group from with Barry Brown at some point had done a kind of such a study. So basically, they make people who were physically inactive and they either uh, control the diet to match the diet to their energy needs, or they did not. Uh, and so the persons were over overfed. And what they observe mm. observed it's um, and they were looking at insulin sensitivity. And of course, uh, insulin sensitivity was impaired when the persons were inactive. It was for only a day. That's crazy. For only one day, uh, insulin sensitivity was reduced uh, when the persons were inactive. But of course, the impact was even more uh, pronounced when the persons were, in addition, overfed. I can't remember the exact numbers on the top of my head. It was something, uh, but both of them were really significant. Um, so, of course, it will be even worse if people are uh, overeating. Mm. So you said that just one day of sedentary behavior and inactivity plus overfeeding results yes. in insulin. Mm. Decrease yes. in insulin sensitivity, and that's where that is. that's where it's really about being physically active every day. You know, um, we know that physical activity mm. uh, moderates vigorous uh, bout of activity or kind of exercise. Um, the effects will last for about twelve to eighteen hours, twenty-four hours. Sometimes for type 2 diabetes, uh, people with type 2 diabetes, they will say exercise at least every other day because there is a kind of chronic effect. Mm. The, the benefits of exercise can last a little bit. But that's where I think it's really different from doing exercise and being sedentary. Being sedentary is a, it's the total absence of muscle activity. And that's we, that we need every day. Maybe mm. you don't go to exercise every day. Every other day is enough. But you do need, a person needs to be um, moving every day, to not be sedentary every day. Mm. So, so you say that there's a chronic effect of exercise, but there's no chronic effect of uh, avoiding sedentary behavior. So you need to take so, it kind of... Uh, on this Every last part, or... I don't know it. That's exactly what we're studying right now. I hope uh, we'll be able to release results very soon. Uh, to my knowledge, we're running mm. uh, the first study, uh, the first longitudinal study on um, the effects of the breaks in prolonged sitting in real life, in people real life. So we have, we're running this over months. Uh, and as for now, for some outcomes, I don't think there is a chronic effect. And for some others, there are. Uh, for what we see with preliminary results, um, it's, for example, the effects on insulin sensitivity, the benefits on insulin sensitivity are the same when people are moving over across the day or when people are doing one time 45 mm. minutes exercise. 
the improvement in insulin sensitivity is the same. And, you know, we, co- we go back to the current mm. uh, recommendations in the U.S., for example, the 2018 U.S. recommendation that are now saying every physical activity, uh, every minute of physical activity matters for health, regardless of when do you do it. If it's mm. in the morning, if it's in the evening, if it's at once, if it's um, spread throughout the day. So either you do 45 minutes at once or you take this uh, 45 minutes and you break them up throughout the day, the improvement on insulin sensitivity is the same. However, for glucose control, I don't think it's exactly the same story. And that's where it's about, mm. yeah. Being how active. do you see it? How, how, yeah, how do you see it being for the glucose how do control? I, sorry? Yeah, how, how do you see it being then for the glucose control? That what I, I really think it's about uh, this um, in some ways, and I, and I don't know to what extent because we didn't really look at all our data yet, but I, I think in some ways it's really about this uh, engagement of the muscle every day that to, to use glucose, you need a muscle to be active. If, if you're not active, there is no mm. point of using glucose. Your body doesn't need energy. Mm. So the only way to reduce the glucose in your blood, to avoid hyperglycemia, to, to burn the glucose, it's to move. If you don't move, we don't need it. And that's where I think it's different. Well, mm. well the other way, uh, when you start to have training because you're physically active, you know, you have changes in your muscle mass, in your muscle structure, in the fibers, etc. And this can have last, more lasting effects. But if you don't move, you don't burn. That's the end point. Hmm. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. My name is uh, Terje Jövåg. I'm associate professor at Oslo Metropolitan University. Currently, I'm using Fibian in a project where we investigate activities of daily life in people with uh, lower limb amputation. My impression is that Fibion is easy to implement in this project. It's easy to use, and it's also simple to upload and analyze the data. Yeah, and and how do you see it? Like, is is standing, for example, it's a very low low muscle activity in anti-gravitational muscles, do you see that that is enough to keep the oxidization of, of carbs going on? Is it enough of a muscle activity? To just be moving, you mean? Uh, if you oh. just stand still, if you don't move but you stand no, I don't still, think is so. it enough? Um, there are some data from uh, some groups in the U.S. with uh, James Levine and uh, Jack Hicksick who looked at that. And they, mm. so they measure the energy expenditure of either sitting or standing, um, and basically the same. It's very the, the increment in energy expenditure from standing to sitting is very minimal. Uh, so it's better than mm. nothing but it's probably not enough. This being said, we ran a study recently in Strasbourg um, where we use different activity monitors. Usually we only use one activity monitor either um, at the west, uh, on the west, waist, or um, place on the hip 
the hip or the waist or mm. placed, sorry, on the thigh. Um, and that provides us some information about uh, the intensity of physical activity, a little bit of a, about uh, position, but it's still uh, still limited. So in this study, we used uh, two monitors, one that was placed on the trunk and one that, one that was placed uh, on the hip. Mm. And by doing so, we were able to make a distinction between the lying position, the sitting position, the standing position. And it's a cross, uh, cross-sectional study. It's not an intervention study, uh, which is more limited in terms of cause and effect relationship. Uh, but we did observe that being laid down is worse than being uh, sitting for lipemia, for uh, blood fatty acid and mm. blood triglycerides, etc. That being standing is better than being st- uh, sitting and that walking is better than standing. So there is a real continuum um, in terms of this physical activity mm. uh, and along with posture and metabolic health outcomes. Mm. And and how do you see the metabolic flexibility then in in the other end of the spectrum when you have, for example, uh, an athlete or maybe even a ultra marathon runner? How how different is it in them? And have you done any studies with? So with I haven't done a study with highly trained athletes. I've done with people who are physically active, but more so physically active from the general population. So. Uh, I would only be able to assume. Uh, and to my knowledge, mm. nobody really did clear uh, investigation on that group of people looking at metabolic flexibility, although some at the University of Colorado, for example, are interested in doing this. Um, but but we can only assume... because so. When we took all of our studies and we combined the results from bed rest studies, from uh, studies during which we asked people to be a little bit less active, uh, people to be a little bit more active, or people to really follow uh, physical activity training for two months. So we have a very large spectrum of changes in physical activity, either with an increase or a decrease and with different, uh, with different degree of changes. When we looked at the studies uh, mm. and pulled all the data together, we were really able to see a relationship between habitual physical activity and metabolic flexibility state. So we can only assume mm. that people who are athletes or highly physical, physically active will have a a very high level of metabolic flexibility, but that's only a guess. Mm. And and I don't know if you have heard, but I think now in some sports, for example, in the road cycling, where they might have a Tour de France, which last three weeks, that they are they are training in a way that they do a training and they don't eat any carbs after the training they might sleep so they try to provide body a stimuli for improvements by staying really in the low carbs they might do two trainings which are hard that 
you don't eat carbs and then they sleep overnight with it. Do you see any point in this from your um, perspective? So I'm not a exercise physiologist in terms of the uh, uh, performance uh, aspects. But I, I think my understanding mm. is more they're trying to train the body to rely on fat and to be really able to rely on fat because when um, a sportive person is going to, to burn all of their carbs and they're running out of carbs, there is no more glycogen, and they need to shift towards the use mm. of fat, there is also a fatigue of the body. And, and this, mm. of course, is yeah. going to impair their performance. So it's more about trying to really train the body to be able to rely on fat without and probably trying to prevent, you know, the level of this fatigue. Of course, that's has to do with metabolic flexibility because now they're more uh, uh, mimicking a fasting state. You know, they're trying to be like, you, you are like in fasting. You really need to burn your fat, you only rely on fat and you need to be able to handle this fat and to adjust your substrate use to your substrate availability. We go back always to the same uh, initial definition. So they must be highly mm. metabolically flexible. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, in some ways, they're trying to train the body to really be able to burn fat when there is only fat, burn carb when there is carb and most likely to prevent uh, the appearance mm. of uh, fatigue symptoms too early. Yeah, and would you describe this as at least as an attempt to train I the metabolic so, yes. flexibility? Yeah, and, and what I have read that they actually, the total amount of carbohydrates eaten per week is the same. So actually they, they restrict it and then they eat twice as much when they actually eat again it that they can then do do the next trainings with the fully recovered state so i think it's i think it's very interesting and and i'm i think there's quite many scientific studies underway on this and how do you see do you think this could be some kind of method also for normal people to train their metabolic flexibility or getting out of their metabolic um, I, I think so. And I think it's what we're also starting to see with all the burgeoning field on fasting, you know, or the uh, time-restricted feeding mm. or eating uh, prolonged fasting, etc. Basically, uh, what has been observed in some of the first um, studies is that fasting is improving metabolic health. It's improving insulin sensitivity, improving the use of fat, improving the use of carb. It's improving metabolic flexibility because now you're mm. training your body to really rely on fat when there is only fat. And then suddenly there is uh, food and you're burning, uh, you're burning carb. Uh, so I think that the mm. paradigm of the athletes is quite extreme because these are uh, highly trained people who are able to handle maybe, uh, you know, extreme changes in their diet. But for more the general population, mm. the fasting, the intermittent fasting might be more uh, feasible and a good way to train the body to shift constantly. And so 
when there's carb, you burn it so that you don't have hyperglycemia. You're not going to become insulin resistant, have prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, etc. But when there is fat, you burn it as well so that you're not going to store it. And most of the time, the problem is to store it not in adipose tissue, but in other tissues that are not made for storage, fat storage, like muscle, liver, bone, hmm. um, etc., which is going to impair the function of these organs and even exacerbate, for example, insulin resistance. So um, in that sense, uh, fasting or manipulating glucose uh, intake can be a good way to train and to have a greater metabolic flexibility. Mm. And how, how do you see, do you see that exercise is in a way kind of fasting because you are using the energy source maybe on a cellular level? Is it is it similar to fasting that you are actually using the energy stores so they start to be depleted? Uh, similarly, in, in a longer fasting, could they be related? So that's a, a really good question, and it has animated a lot of scientists. Is in other words, is underfeeding the same as exercising? Is creating an energy deficit by eating less the same than creating an energy deficit by exercising more? Um, mm. Evidence we have nowadays. Some are saying yes, and some are saying no. I, in some ways, most likely, if you don't have, you're depleting your glucose and glycogen storage, uh, you're going to rely on fat, and that's going to be the same. Either you're fasting or you're exercising. However, mm. we know that exercise has effects that are independent of weight loss, for example. It provides the body with more benefits for metabolic health. And this might be because of the activation of many metabolic processes at the levels of each organs involved in the energy homeostasis, like liver, skeletal muscle, adipose tissue, and um, we are also observing more and more that there is a inter-organ crosstalk. So the organs are going to communicate between each other by uh, using some molecules. That's what we call the secretum, basically. Uh, and, and those molecules, just the fact of being active, it's not even a question. We, we don't know yet. This is a really big um a new field of research, but maybe it's just a fact of contracting muscle mm. that is going to provoke this response and those uh, changes in the metabolic processes. Uh, and, and in that case, exercise is not the same as fasting because fasting doesn't provoke all of this, uh, this communication, this molecular communication, these changes in metabolic processes, etc. Hmm. So do you see that exercise yes. would be better than Anytime. fasting as it, it does any differently? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think many people don't want to hear that. They rather <laughs> I know, but... <laughs> do some fasting than exercise. <laughs> yeah, but now it's now you have said it. That's that's very good. So uh I think it's been 
absolutely fascinating discussions. I'm I'm really excited about these talks. Uh, is there something else you would like add to this these discussions? I think you know if uh, yes, people wants the perfect pill, having exercise in the pill. I don't, I don't believe it will ever come. Um, also believe we, mm. we just maybe to finish. Um, we talked about this threshold, you know, physical activity. What is it? What is going on? Uh, above this threshold, we can adapt our food intake to our uh, energy expenditure. Below this threshold, we're no longer able to adapt. I also think the more I'm researching mm. on the relationship between physical activity, sedentary behaviors, and, and this metabolic flexibility, I really think that what is happening is when we are above this threshold, we are metabolic flexible. We're able to handle all this metabolic stress right? and this and thus to maintain our health and metabolic health. When we are below this threshold, I think the metabolically inflexible state is triggered and we're no longer able to handle all this metabolic stress like overeating, exercise. But you can think of other things, you know, like cold exposure, altitude, pregnancy, staying in bed for a long time because we're at the hospital, etc. And so that's where we, our health mm. is more and more impaired. Over the years, um, with the revolutions we know of, industrial revolution, technological revolution, etc., we have become more and more physically inactive, more and more sedentary. And I think that we went from one side of this threshold to the other one, and so our societies were metabolically flexible and now we have triggered this group or this metabolic inflexible state at the population level because of our environmental changes. Mm. And so our goal now is to really try to go back on the other side, to go back in the zone of metabolic flexibility. And so for, and for this, I really believe the only way is to be physically active and not sedentary and this every day. Mm, yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot for taking the time for this yes, podcast. Thank you very Audrey. much for asking me. That's really, that was really nice. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com slash research. The Physical Activity Researcher podcast has created an activity tracker purchase guide for researchers. Get your free copy from the link in the podcast description. Thank you for listening to the Physical Activity Researcher podcast.